0: Happy New Year, everyone. As we ended the 2023 fall semester, we found higher education in the crosshairs of the media. From the front page of the New York Times to the cold open of Saturday Night Live. Not a great place to be. Public response to issues on our campuses can cause public relations challenges, and leaders must be able to respond during times of crisis in ways that show both empathy and strength. With higher ed finding itself in a crisis of public trust Institutions must be ready to respond. As such, I couldn't think of a better guest than my old friend, who is a leadership and communication expert by the name of Scott Monty. To speak on this topic, you will hear Scott provide himself with a full introduction in the episode, but you will see that he has an impressive track record of leadership and communication accomplishments in the private sector. He's currently a consultant on the topics of leadership and communication and has a lot to say on this. But while he is a corporate person, he has a true appreciation for higher ed as you will come to find out, he is a classics major, so he gets it. But he is an expert, and he knows we can do better when it comes to crisis communication. I have a feeling that you will enjoy this first conversation of the 2024 year. I I don't have a lot of guests on the show who I share silly reels with on on. Instagram, is that okay? (laughs) We're moving moving into this, and it's we're recording this. So happy Festivus! It's it's that Festivus time of the year. It's a Festivus miracle. I got a lot of problems with you people. (laughs) The airing of grievances. That was it's literally my favorite part of that. All right. So we're going to air some grievances today. Welcome Scott Monty to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe.
1: Thanks for having me here. What a a Uh, great treat. Not only to see you and and talk to you as a friend, but as a colleague as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So Scott and I, just in the interest interest of true transparency, have known each other for quite some time. And (laughs) we've been part of each other's lives for quite some time. And I... You have had a very specific career trajectory. So I'd love you to kind of, this is a higher ed audience. And so I'd love you to kind of just tell them a little bit about you're in Michigan. What brought you to Michigan and what do you, what do you spend your time doing, Scott? Because we're going to be talking about crisis communication today. And I want people to know why they should be listening. Sure.
1: Well, as with many things in life, my career was anything but a straight line. I initially thought I was going to medical school, but I ended up kind of diverting in grad school and adding an MBA to a master's degree in medical science. So I worked in the healthcare field for a while, thinking I'd be just as uh, efficient or perhaps a little more dangerous having business and scientific knowledge together. So I am a triple terrier from Boston University and got my undergraduate degree in classical civilization, which actually in the long run, has served my career a lot better than I thought it would. I worked in the advertising and marketing industry for a while, eventually getting into social media before it was a big thing. We're talking the early to mid-2000s. And in late 2007, I got a call from the chief communications officer at Ford Motor Company. Would I be interested in joining the Ford team to become the first executive in charge of digital communications and social media. Uh, I had been in Boston for 20 years at that point. Didn't think I'd ever have to leave the hub of the universe. And my natural question to him was, well, do I have to move to Detroit? And to his credit, well, I, and he said, yeah. And, and, and I said, well, I'm not interested at this time. And to his credit, he didn't say, do you know who you're dealing with? Do you know who you're talking to? We are Ford Motor Company. What he said was, "Are you sure?" Mm-hmm. And I said, "Well, the timing just doesn't seem right." And I said, "I've, I, I really appreciate the, the the consideration, but it just, I'm not feeling it right now." Well, I followed the leadership at Ford and their plan. They had a very well designed and well communicated plan, and the idea was that by 2009, Ford would become profitable. So transition into early 2008, Ford files a $100 million quarterly profit. And I thought, huh, maybe there's something going on here that I'm not fully aware of. We got back in touch and they said, we keep hearing your name. We haven't filled the spot yet. We'll just come out to Dearborn and and humor us, right? Sit for a couple of days of interviews. And when I did, I was just bowled over with the intelligence and the the expertise and professionalism of everyone, and most of all, a passion. And I knew you can't fake passion. You can't manufacture that. It's got to come from somewhere. And a few weeks later, a month and a half or so later, I was working at Ford. Ten days after I started, the company filed an $8.7 billion quarterly loss, which actually, uh, that led us into the carpocalypse, which was a global phenomenon. And Ford was at the at the forefront of that, because we had already taken our $26 billion home improvement loan to finance mm-hmm. our plan, but it was day in, day out, crisis communications. I was doing what I call digital hand-to-hand combat with my team for mm-hmm. six months straight, trying to make sure that people knew that Ford wasn't the same as GM and Chrysler. We weren't yeah. expecting a bailout. We, were, we had a plan. Here are the products. Here's the leadership, et cetera. So I, I was really steeped in digital crisis communication and overall crisis communication um, from the get go at Ford
0: mm-hmm. and
1: being part of the corporate communications team there. I had exposure to the entire business, to many executives. I worked directly with the CEO uh, a number of times and learned an awful lot about leadership and strategy and how to communicate well to to really make your case to the public. So left Ford in 2014 and I've been consulting and speaking ever since.
0: I think it's interesting as we're thinking about crisis communication in fields and a lot of people would listen to this and say, well, this is a corporate guy. He's a corporate guy. Ford is an institution. It may not be higher education. It may not be University of Michigan. Okay. But things at Ford, from a cultural standpoint, don't change very often. And am I right?
1: You're completely right. This was this was part of the problem. The the culture had become intractable until they brought in an outside leader that really changed the way of doing things.
0: Right. And I think that that's where I reached out to, to you, because what I've seen over time and this this within recent memory, Things have gotten to a point where it's it's become so volatile, is that institutions of higher education in their need for crisis communication are, are literally tripping over themselves. They're trying to please everybody or please nobody. They're coming across as probably our worst version of ourselves. Right now, higher education in the United States is at its lowest level of trust, and, and we should be working to improve trust, but our actions are actually running counter to that. I wrote recently in my blog that, reflecting on the the hearing and Congress with the presidents from MIT, Penn, and Harvard, that when you find yourself as the target of the SNL cold open, you have really stepped in. And and so when I was trying to figure out, I'm like, I need to talk to someone about crisis communication, but I'm sure as hell not going to talk to someone from a college or university right now. I want to talk to somebody who's actually done it from a different viewpoint. That's why I came to you. Higher ed has been in this kind of mode of overcommunication for quite some time. When anything happens, we feel like we need to communicate how we're feeling how we're responding, even if it has not taken place on our own campus. So for instance, I was brought up in certain times where let's say uh, something happened. I'm thinking about Hurricane Katrina, for instance. I was working at a university at the time in Massachusetts. We were not impacted physically by Hurricane Katrina, but we knew we had certain percentage of students who were from effective and impacted areas. We went to our information folks. We found anyone from the zip code area. We we had a team of people who reached out to them. We made sure the community knew what to do. An internal communication went out, not a a, a huge communication, A communication went out to people who are like, okay, you're an academic advisor, you're this person, you're a faculty member. If you have students who come to you who say they're from an impacted area and they lost their computer, because this happened when move-in was happening at the schools, okay? So you had students who are literally hightailing it out of their, their home in Louisiana, and they don't have anything. They have the clothes on their back, and that's it. They don't have a computer. They don't have their textbooks. They have nothing. So if you hear that somebody needs something, this is the plan to take. That's a different type of crisis communication in terms of here's your call to action. Here's what you do. All that. That was stuff that we were pretty good at. Then 2016 happens. And I remember it like it was yesterday. When the Muslim ban happened in the the spring of or in January of 2017. After Donald Trump was elected, colleges and universities felt like they had to get the word out. This is not part of our values. You are somebody who's valued here. We care about you. Here's where we are. It was the right thing to do, but it has set up this over-communication and over-response and an expectation that institutions are still battling with, and it's become part of our culture something happens, where's the response? And I think that we lose our ability to manage our own communities when we are in this constant response mode. I guess the question I have for you is, is there a way to roll this back? Am I losing my mind? Am I in the wrong trajectory here? You know me well enough, so I want you to tell me what, where I might be missing something.
1: Well, I don't think you're, you're really missing anything, Laura. It is a problem because it seems to me, at least from an outside observer and, and, and as an interested outside observer, I am passionate about education. I think being a lifelong learner is an important characteristic of every single leader. When you find somebody who isn't interested in learning and improving and growing, then that's not a leader. And. This this would serve uh, these leaders at higher education institutions as well. I hope they're learning from their mistakes as we go along, because what I've observed is higher education officials, maybe the institutions themselves, maybe the boards, maybe the presidents, I don't know exactly where it stems from, seem to have to have something to say about everything. And when we live in an environment where we are constantly bombarded by everyone down to the last individual having an opinion and posting it online, it's cacophony. And to me, an institution, whether it's a business uh, or a college or university, should have something to say only when it's relevant to its mission and vision. If there's something that happens out there that doesn't affect how you run your business, how you run your institution, you don't have to say something about it. You know, it's it's not like people are sitting by the phone or sitting by their computer where you go, oh, I wonder what Harvard's going to say about this issue today. Right, people don't right, think right. like that. However, right. if it's something that directly impacts your constituents, your your stakeholders, your way of running your institution, your, your team, then, of course, you have a responsibility to say something about it. And I think what's happened is when they've, when they've constantly blathered about everything, when it does come time to take a stand and you look back at their history of statements, there are contradictory things. There are things that make no sense there. And and this is what happened in Congress a few weeks ago. People were looking for a firm statement for somebody to stand up Mm -hmm. with courage and say, look, genocide wherever it's coming from discrimination wherever it's coming from is wrong we mm-hmm. fundamentally believe in human dignity and mm-hmm. and that's not taking sides that's just saying something that you stand for that's stating your character and i think mm-hmm. there are so many leaders who are trying to tiptoe around issues that they just as you said before they don't stand for anything at the same time they're trying to stand for everything It just, it becomes really, really weak when you do ask them to take a stand.
0: I think that leadership is such an important component of crisis communication. It's very easy. I mean, I I teach crisis communication classes. I talk about crisis management classes. And I talk about in these classes is that everyone needs to have a role. Okay. So if we just go back to this idea of a hurricane hits campus, Everyone needs to know, if you open up your crisis manual, and in the case of a weather-related emergency, the following offices take the following roles, we need to use that. I always use weather emergencies as the starting point for crisis communication and crisis management classes. Because I say, you're not going to change that. You're not going to all of a sudden say... Yeah, I know that in the book, it says the facilities office manages the generators and make sure the power stays on, but we're going to have the career services office people do it now, right? We don't change this. We don't make new roles for people during the emergency. And what I feel like is happening is we don't have, it. it's a mushier plan. When there's an issue of political strife, okay, or world conflict, if it's not something as you said that has specific re- relevancy to your campus and to the business that you're doing, it gets mushy. And my advice to people is, if it's mushy, you got, don't touch it. Just like if you went into the refrigerator, that's good and advice in life. Mushy. If
1: you if yeah, you come exactly. across that, anything, I'm like.
0: It's like as as George Carlin used to say, how, how is that? I don't know. Smell it. I mean, like if it's if it smells bad, don't touch it. OK, it, am I wimpy to say? It?
1: No, I think it's practical. And And I think there there has to be some sort of hierarchy here when when we think about it. And this is when I was at Ford, corporate communications was the nerve center of the company. If we didn't know about it, it wasn't happening, but we had our tentacles yep. into every, every department, right? And, and mm-hmm. we would have people that were responsible for being liaisons with those departments. But ultimately it yep. was the responsibility of communications to lead the efforts, particularly, particularly in crisis communications. Mm. I mean, that's where it gets out of hand really quickly.
0: Really? So,
1: and, and there's, all sorts of handbooks and uh, and ways to approach crisis communications. But fundamentally, it's got to be streamlined through one organization. The other thing is, if you have established a clear and compelling vision and you're communicating regularly in non-crisis modes, then you'll know fundamentally what the standards are, what the phrases you should be using, how you should be referring to the team, the institution, the stakeholders, et cetera, there becomes kind of a lexicon that you've already digested that makes mm. it a lot easier. Because here's the thing, with crises, you may have a plan, but it's that old canard that everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the nose. And at that point, the crisis communications plan is going to simply be a, a framework rather than a step-by-step guide because things are dicey and different every single day
0: the you know you bring up industry and it, and it made me think of something do you think the way people expect response from from uh different industries is different now because like I, let me explain if if there's a crisis in the airline industry or in mm-hmm. the you know the core the, the automobile industry people are going to have a certain response they're going to if you have a massive recall and you have to Give people information on this. They're going to want something specific. When you're a university and you're putting out a crisis response, do you think that people can't? It's that nuance problem. We have a nuance problem in communication anyway. We are we're literally ingesting information through a fire hose on a daily basis. I I wonder if there's a certain nuance that people expect that. The message coming from the university is going to be in the same kind of polished response as that coming from the corporation, but but the universities say, "Yeah, we're a university. We don't do polish. We do we do our communication the way we do our communication." Am I making sense?
1: Yeah. Well, and and that's just it. I mean, you've got. And it's an unfair comparison, unfortunately, because these, uh, and let's just call them, uh, industries are vastly yep. different. They're, they're different in their, their aims. They're different in their pursuits. They're different in their styles. However, it doesn't change the reality of the way people perceive things. And
0: that's what I'm saying to the general
1: public. I don't think there's that ability or willingness to appreciate the nuance. We, Mm -hmm. We are in a post nuance society right now. I think unless you are hammering people over the head with something, your message isn't getting through and people have knee jerk reactions to what they see and they only read headlines. They don't Mm -hmm. read down through the the details so that you need to operate within that reality. I, and and I think higher education institutions are in la-la land if they think they can keep doing things the way they've always done them. Because guess what? The world around them has changed. We're, right. we're no longer on the corporate side. We're not communicating via fax machines anymore. We've evolved. And so, too. Dolly Parton only uses us.
0: a fax machine. Does she? It's, I can't believe. All right. I'll just send you this. Dolly Parton does not have a, a cell phone. She does not have email or anything like that. She's like, you call me through my fax machine.
1: That is awesome.
0: But to your point, there you go. I apologize. I cut you off. But they're no, in La Land. If they think that there is this whole thing and we don't live in a world of fax machines, we don't live all this stuff, they have to move with the times in terms of how communication is actually absorbed
1: that's right. And it doesn't mean you give up on your style or what it is that you're communicating, although that probably needs to be looked at as well. But I'll give you a great example. December of 2008, I was at a, uh, a meeting with about 200 journalists. There were business press and auto press, and we were prepping them for the big Detroit auto show in January, kind of giving them a preview. Here's what to expect. Here's the vehicles. Get your stories pre-written so that when we reveal it, you've, you're ready to go. And we are in a big showroom in Ford's product development center. And all of a sudden, the double doors burst open and shoulder to shoulder in walk-in Alan Mulally, the current CEO of Ford at the time, and Bill Ford, the chairman and great-grandson of the founder of the company and all heads turn their way. And I'm there on my BlackBerry. Yes, that's right. I had a BlackBerry because it was 2008. And I was on Twitter and just kind of giving my observations as the new guy, uh, all starry-eyed as to what was going on inside. And a couple of my followers said, uh, hey, see if you can get Alan to take some questions. Now, this is just weeks or days after the congressional hearings, the congressional mm-hmm. hearings that put forward Shoulder to shoulder with GM and Chrysler. And that put us in the cold open, by the way. <laughs> that was fun. Um, yeah. Yeah. We're, uh, we're losing $1,800 a car. So what are you going to do, Mr. Wagoner? Oh, we're going to build more cars. Um, yes. <laughs> so they said, see if Alan would take some questions on Twitter. I go, all right. So I wait for this, the media scrum to break up and I go to Alan's communications lead. We think Alan would be willing to take some questions on Twitter. Now this, this was, I mean, we, it's easy to think of CEOs on Twitter or on mm. threads or wherever you happen to be these days. But back in yeah. December of 2008, this was a brand new kind of concept. Right. So she goes, ask him. I go, Hey, Alan, he goes, Hey, S- Scott, how's it going? I said, well, I'm doing great, but would you be willing to take some questions on Twitter? And he goes, Oh, absolutely. What's Twitter? And the point of the story is Alan had the willingness, the spirit to engage with people, right? This is a universal thing. And he didn't didn't care where it happened. He said, all right, the audience is over here. I will go over here and engage with them the way they need me to engage. And it was so successful and so transparent in terms of the things he shared and how he thought. That the next time we did it, the next quarter, I brought a camera crew with me and filmed it so people could see Alan's reactions and getting the questions read to him Mm -hmm. and how he responded in real time. So that's a lesson in how we need to update our communication styles to move with the time and to still fundamentally maintain that human element and our style and our message that we all need to maintain but to do it in a way that resonates with the audience that needs to hear it.
0: Right. And and I will also accentuate that there are a lot of institutions that are doing, we we started out our conversation today about reels and about seeing things on TikTok or reels or whatever. They have a really good job with these Instagram takeovers where Hi, I'm Lauren. I'm a I'm a sophomore here at blah, 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 and I'm going to take you on my day. And it's like, hey, guys. Like, I swear to God, if I see one more video that starts, hey, guys, I'm going to take you on a day of my Instagram takeover. Oh, look, it's my omelet from the residence hall. Isn't it great? I'm going to literally poke my eye out. But that being said, I know why they're made. They're made because they want to get out in front of people because the Instagram accounts... And most of these spaces are for public relations. They're about boosting the profile of the institution with applicants. They want people to see what the institution's all about. They do not use them effectively when it comes to a crisis. Now, and, yeah, go ahead.
1: And that is because in that case, the communications team is being leveraged as if they were the chief marketing officer, right? Yes. And that that's important. Right, it, it's always important to, to polish the image and to make sure you're attracting new students and parents and alumni and all the rest. And and that's the other mm-hmm. thing. A lot of times, this is done because they want to preserve or promote alumni yeah. relations and development. Right, the fundraising arm. Mm-hmm. Uh, fundamentally, communications is something that should be happening every single day. The chief communications officer should report to the president or CEO whoever is leading the organization and is a strategic counsel in mm. how a, an institution, whether it's higher education or corporate communicates to the rest of the world.
0: Right. And and I will say this is that it is absolutely stunning to me because I've been looking at it because I have nothing else to do with my time. I've been looking at Instagram accounts and Twitter accounts and all of that from institutions that are right now having really difficult times in terms of conflict on their campuses because of what's happening globally. And it is to my, I'm like, come on, literally in the newspaper, it's talking about you've had students arrested on campus, but yet your your Instagram account is all roses and apple pies. And you, I'm not saying that you can't do, you need to be able to do both. And you also need to be able to say, we you've seen this with corporations if you've got stuff already queued up to go out on a day and there's something has happened in the news, you need to take it down
1: a hundred yep. percent
0: it's like come on. Like yeah. I'm gonna take take it away from something global. Let's say it was we got hit with a with an absolutely terrible snowstorm, and oh, we're gonna put up our happy like oh look the kids are going snow. Oh, like don't do that. Take it down because right. people want to know their kid is safe. They want to know that what's happening at the institution. You need to be putting stuff out there. I will give mad props to the University of Miami, not just because I know people down there who are part of that, but they do an exceptional job because they're very used to hurricanes. They're very used to other kinds of, of issues. They know how to make sure that that they have a good balance. They know how to put stuff out about communication. That is the, is my child, am I safe? And they then can flip the flip to the. Woohoo! Here we go. Let's go to the U and let's go to the room, the, the takeover and let's go to the football game. They they get that. They get that. And they get the big duck there. That's a hurricane. That, what is I think it's a duck. Their mascot is a duck, I think. That's a big duck. Anyway, they go to the duck.
1: There you go. Well, and then that, that gets directly to what I was just talking about in terms of the the difference between marketing and communications. And this was what, what, what happened in corporate America about, I want to say about 10 years ago is the social media. And we, we are talking largely about social media because that's the most immediate way to communicate with people. The social media function got split. We, we used to at Ford, we were strategically in charge of social media in communications but eventually it peeled off and went over to marketing. Why? Because marketing has the budget, right? They have the yeah. budget to put paid media behind it, to staff up, et cetera. And, and they had the content studios that would craft all of the memes and everything that they're doing. Communications professionals, by and large, are news junkies. And, and that's mm. why they've chosen that profession, right? They live and thrive on the day-to-day ins and outs, the give and takes, the pushes and pulls that we see in media. And and they're paying attention to what's going on in the world outside them. That's why, again, a chief communications officer is providing strategic counsel to a president based on market forces, based on what's going on inside an institution, based on what's going on with employees and customers. And I mean, the whole stakeholder list, they have a good read on what the climate is out there. Marketing is heads down, working in content, doing what it does really well, and they don't always pay attention to that. So you need to align your two teams to make sure, especially in a crisis, that they are clued in as to what the other is doing. The communications team should understand what the, the campaign cadence is from the marketing team to know what the content calendar looks like, so to speak. And the marketing team should understand and be alerted to any crises that may require dialing back some of that content. Right. But these two groups are so essential at what they do, but they need to be brought together and used more effectively.
0: I want to ask you, it's that time of year when campuses, this is going to air in January and people are making plans and that sort of thing. And I oftentimes recommend to my clients and to folks that you need to do audits on a regular basis in terms of mm-hmm. functional audits and how things are happening. And to your point, I mean, technology changes. Why do we still have this as part of our our cadence of work? Why is this still part of the workflow when we haven't really used this anymore? Let's change it. If you were to sit down with, a, with an organization and say, when is it time for, say, a communications audit? What are some of the things that would be a trigger to that?
1: Well, obviously, you would ideally like to do it before a crisis hits. It's like the old canard, when's the best time to plant a tree? Yesterday, when's the second best time? Today. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, this, the sooner you can do it, the better. And to me, it really starts with understanding fundamentally where your team is aligned what the vision is for the organization and whether or not you actually have some sort of at least understanding, if not a playbook for who and when and how things like this get handled. And I've seen a variety of teams do things a variety of different different ways, but fundamentally it always comes down to understanding who is in charge when something happens. And you may not be the person with the title, but, Again, if it's if it's well understood and it's a well oiled machine, then everything just kind of snaps into place.
0: Yep. And I think that I mean, in my opinion, I think that in organizations right now, it's a perfect time for any college or university, whether it be the main university or the communications office, or even the division of academic or student affairs, to say, Yeah, we need to we need to dial back. We gotta figure this out. We need to have yeah someone come in who take a look at this and say what what, what let, let's let's peel back the onion and figure out what stinks because yeah. there's certain aspects of this process that just don't resonate with people right. um and, and i want to i, I want to be I, one
1: clear about one thing on that laura i may be coming at this from a corporate perspective and from a fortune 10 perspective. Yeah. I've had a lot of clients come to me and kind of be, Oh, I'm a, a small mom and pop shop. I don't know if uh, you're right for us. That's garbage. And, and I'll tell you, it's, it, it applies to different industries as well. I mean, I could function within the higher ed industry just as well as I could in corporate. Why back to my classics mm-hmm. education? It's understanding human nature. If you understand yes. how people engage with each other, what their motivations are, how they interact. People are people and have been the same for mm. thousands upon thousands of years. This isn't rocket science. It's it's anthropology. It's psychology. Mm. It's sociology. Things that you would think higher ed would be really good at. Definitely. But sometimes you need the, the perspective of an outsider to come in and go, mm. you know what? You guys are really screwed up.
0: And, yeah. and help so, you
1: fix it. And,
0: yeah, well, and I think that higher ed does... We do a really good job say, oh, this person, they're corporate. They don't understand this. And I'm like, we got to start bringing some more people in who can kind of say, hey, dingy, like bang, bang, bang on your forehead. We need you to really think this through in a way that you need to understand your audience is listening to your announcements. At the same time, they're getting text messages from Grubhub and they're reading Twitter for their news. Like, this is literally where people are coming from. Like, I don't, this, I, people need to understand they're not differentiating between if it's coming from the university, if it's coming from their favorite food delivery company, or if it's coming from their automotive company that's doing a recall.
1: Yeah. And, and this kind of gets to kind of another dichotomy that I want to focus on for a bit. I said earlier in the show that you shouldn't have to have something to say about everything. At the Mm -hmm. same time, uh, communications 101, if you don't define yourself, someone else will define it for you, right? So how do you reconcile those two things? Well, look, if you don't have a seat at the table, if you don't have a natural stake in the conversation, then you don't have to worry about how you're defined. But if it is something that is core to what you do and it, it affects your vision and your mission, then absolutely, you need to stand up there and have some courage. And I wanted to, to uh, pause just a moment, too, to talk about courage, because I think we saw a lack of it last month in that congressional hearing. Courage, when you consider what it is and how you act, it's, it's the midpoint between rashness and timidity. Right. You mm. don't want a leader who is just going out there shooting from the hip and just saying things in a rash manner. And you don't want someone who's over there shying away and tiptoeing around issues. You want somebody who puts a clear stake in the ground and who says exactly what they stand for. And that's what people look for.
0: Yeah. I I agree with you 100%. I I want to bring in something though, that's also been like gnawing at me is that this idea of bias And what people see, I've heard people who are higher ed folks who still squirmed when watching that congressional hearing, but went to this, but they were women and they treated them a certain way because they were women. And I said, I think that there was a certain amount of this that it was bias, sexist bias that says women are supposed to be more empathetic. We're supposed to be more caring, sharing and validating. We're supposed to be more X, Y, Z. Now you and I have been friends for a long time. You will know that I am not exactly one of the most caring, sharing, validating people in the world. So I get a lot of like pushback of you need to be more empathetic. I'm like, well, if I, if I'm too soft, then you're going to tell me I'm too soft and I'm a woman and I shouldn't be doing this. So screw you. I'm not going to, I'm not going to necessarily fall in your camp, but I am going to say that what I've heard from people, including people I trust and I respect is. People wanted to hear someone care. And these three people did not emanate care. At least the clip that was shown over and over and over again. Earlier in this, there was a little more care and empathy when they were talking about what they were doing on their campus. That didn't make it to the headline. That didn't make it to the, the gag reel, so to speak. That didn't, that was not there. So that idea of bias, if you're a leader, when you're coaching leaders, do you ever talk about bias, how you lean into it or push back on it or avoid it? I mean, how do we do that? Whether it be around our race, our gender, our gender identity, our sexual orientation, is there something we need to keep in mind about crisis communication and how the bias that exists on the outside is going to impact how it is being heard? and processed by the external?
1: Well, so here's, it's a a great question, Laura, but here's the problem I have with bias. Bias, at least when you are in the leader's seat, when you're in the communicator's chair, bias is something that is external to you. And you have no idea who has bias and who doesn't and to what degree or if not at all right? So you can't do anything to affect other people's bias. And this is a thing I tell leaders all the time. Focus on the things you can control. Focus on your yeah. own behaviors. Focus on your own reactions to the world. Focus on the way you carry yourself. And really there are, gosh, I, don't remember, I think six, six elements that I talk to leaders about. Uh, in terms of what they need to bring to a situation. And one of them you actually touched on there. Courage, we already talked about. Integrity, resilience, generosity, concern, and character. These are the th- six traits that I think are essential to leaders, particularly in a crisis. We talked mm-hmm. about courage already. Integrity. This is about doing what you say and, 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 and walking the walk and talking the talk and, and making sure you're consistent in how you show up and, and acting with that, that sense of a trueness to yourself and to your institution. Resilience talked about resilience. Well, this is about getting up after you've been knocked down. Yeah. We all take our lumps from time to time. That's life. You can't let it yeah. get you down. And a good, resilient leader is flexible, and they persevere, and they're self-aware, right? That's how we learn and grow each time. Generosity. We, we've heard, and is probably an overused term, of servant leadership. This is about putting ourselves second. It's about leading with humility and knowing that we are there to accomplish things on behalf of others. And even the president of a university has to report to a board. Right. We, we are here to serve and to remember that we serve others. Concern. Concern is the one that you mentioned. It's really empathy. And this is kind of the, the way I said courage was the midpoint between timidity and rashness. Well, mm-hmm. concern is really the midpoint between indifference and mania. It's, and it's really about how you express empathy. And if you are warm and calm, and mm. letting people know that you're concerned about them then they'll understand that and all of this all all five of those previous behaviors add up to character and mm. that's what people will judge you by your character will be evident particularly in times of crisis that's when people are really exposed mm. and if i can yeah. if i can dip into my classics education publius cyrus in 40 oh, bc said anyone Anyone can steer the ship when it's calm, right? Mm. It's when the seas get rough that we actually see the true character of a person.
0: That is a perfect way to end this. And I can't help but thank you enough because here's the thing. I I truly believe that in order to build the trust that higher education needs to build and improve, we have to lead with all of those things that you just outlined. It is our duty to not dig our heels in. We have to be not just nimble and adjust to what's happening in the world, whether it be about what modes of communication or how we set up our communication system in terms of best practice. We have to be authentic to who we are and we need people to trust in who we are. There is a certain amount of brand loyalty that's part of this. And sure. I hate to make it about a brand, but we are a brand. And if people don't trust the brand, they're not going to buy it. Especially when we're facing the fact that we are, let's just say, a, a premium brand. And so you have to bring people to the table. 100%. Scott, thank you so much for being here. How do people find you on the interwebs, Scott? On the interwebs. Want to engage with you more, either through your your coaching and your consulting, or just want to find you in terms of life?
1: Sure. Well, I am Scott Monty on all of the socials. You can find me particularly on LinkedIn, as well as on Substack, where I write the timeless and timely newsletter which has a whole bunch of different branches I, I actually run a podcast myself called timeless leadership one where i think you might need to make an appearance soon sometime soon laura so uh, be we'll talk about a uh, an episode swap um but yeah uh, i would be delighted if uh, folks would check me out and drop me a line scott at scottmonte.com if you're uh, so attuned to email would love to hear from you. would love to hear what your challenges are and how together we might take a look at them and look at the values that drive you and that drive your institution.
0: Well, I couldn't give you a higher Yelp review than the most stars. They say. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. Happy New Year. And I will see you on the Internet. You've got it. I hope you learned something. And uh, I think now is the time to get that crisis communication audit done. Don't delay. Uh, You know, it doesn't matter your position at the institution. If you see something that is needing a review, let folks know, find an expert, and get that done. It is too important. So don't delay. Thank you being an Office Hours listener. In order to grow our community, please rate, review, and share the podcast with your network. I would really appreciate it. And hey, don't forget the show notes. There you'll find more information on today's guest, Scott Monty, and on his own newsletter and podcast, which I highly recommend. You will also find more information on how to follow me on social media and how to become a subscriber to my Substack newsletter. Thank you to my wonderful producer, David Yaz. And Office Hours is a production of Pod 617 Studios in Westwood, Massachusetts. Now get on out there and learn something.